All right, we're three cool guys hanging out, ready to ready to record the podcast. Uh, we're here live. Welcome back to Pod Damn America, America's number one God Socialist podcast. I'm your host Jake Flores, and I have with me my co-host Jake Flores. Anders Lee here. That's right. And uh, we got a great show for you today. We have a very exciting guest for you, an expert, a top man in his field. Writer of books. A man of letters. Book, book or books? <laughs> but it's books. It's at least. There's an S at the end of that, books. right? Oh, nice. I've, I yeah. looked at two of them for this episode, because if there's only one, there's a problem. Uh, anyway, yeah, we're here with Jared Shanahan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What's up, man? Did you, you you used to live in New York, right? I lived in New York for a long time. Greatest city in the world. Greatest city in the um, world. You know, I'm back for a couple days. Just got back from Punjabi. Uh, Whoa. You know, Damn. Went to the ABC No Rio Zine Library. Nice. Just going all in. He's traveling. That's right. He's out and about. Um, we have a recurring struggle on this podcast where we want to talk about stuff like, uh, I don't know, the New York prison system or the mayor and stuff like that, but then not have everyone who lives in any other state immediately turn off the show. Yeah. Did and, we? I was going to do an hour on Justice LaSalle. That could be good. Yeah. We're going to circle back on I'm that. I'm sorry, but it is extremely entertaining. I don't know if you've been following this mm-hmm. thing. Kathy Hochul. You seen this Justice LaSalle? Yeah. She's, it's, in some case, people are not in New York. Uh-huh. Uh, Let's pretend I don't know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't know about that? No. <laughs> so, Kathy Hochul, of course, uh, uh-huh. elected for the first time by the skin of her teeth. And hey, congratulations. Has put all her political capital on confirming a right-wing judge oh, who okay. has uh, agreed with the majority. I don't want, he ruled. I don't, I don't know the exact yeah. terminology. Yeah. Either ruled or uh, voted with the majority opinion, whatever, however you want to have it uh, on things like um, allowing uh, lawyers to uh, bar dark skinned people from serving on juries said like, that's kosher to do that. How would you do that legally? How would you do that? Like a, I, there's some like precedent for it. Yeah, we've I mean, opened the warp gate of I think, racism. I think it was the minority opinion, thankfully. But like, this just gives you an idea of what this is. Unintended. Like. And he, yeah, and uh, he's anti-labor. Uh, has ruled against unions and done some anti-choice things. And, she, and on so top she of that, he's to, French, <laughs> folks. We must see him. Well, no, crucially, he is uh, Puerto Rican, uh-huh. and that is being weaponized as you might imagine Mm -hmm. to push this guy through. And they're saying like, why don't, why can't he be held to the same standard as the white justices? And Lin-Manuel Miranda's dad is speaking out in favor of this guy. And oh, no. just this weekend on Sunday, they're weaponizing raps as we speak. It, it won't. They're developing it's a matter raps of time. at an alarming, an alarming rate. It's a matter of time before we hear my pal LaSalle being blasted uh, through Harlem. They're going to have cars going around with Lin-Manuel and Miranda's new hit. Um, it, but this weekend, Kathy went to a church in, I believe, Sunset Park and gave a speech. Uh, and I thought at first this was just like one quote of the speech. She did a whole speech, like a whole 20 minutes, comparing this guy to Martin Luther King. That's a big play. Yeah. It's a big move if you can pull it off. I don't know. How's it looking? Um, it's looking bad. I mean, she... The LaSalle thing. You think he's going to go through? No, I, I uh, fingers crossed no, because um, they've gotten a lot of... Even like moderate Democrat types have spoken out against him, and he has to get through conference, which is controlled by the Democrats. And uh, 
she might have to call in a favor from Republicans to get him through in like a general vote. But like, yeah, I don't know. I don't. It, well, this actually made segue into an interesting question. Okay. So if they do things like uh, okay. further, I mean, they're not, it doesn't seem like carceral reform is on the agenda anymore for like the political class. Um, but if it were, don't they, it seems like they need people like this guy to kind of contain that, right? Uh, you know, you have a democratic uh, government uh -huh. in theory, uh -huh. but you, they need to keep the judicial system reactionary. I don't know if you have, if you've been following this, you have much uh, insight into why she's doing this. Well, it certainly mirrors the history um, of reform that I chart uh, in the book. Um, yeah, captives. the book yeah. is Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage. And uh, something that I found um, recurring throughout uh, the history of the punishment system in New York um, are these moments of uh, popular upsurge when large numbers of people decide that they are no longer going to abide by the status quo um, and put a pressure on um, politicians, um, whether it be through traditional electoral means or extra parliamentary means like rioting. Um, to communicate to politicians that th things need to change urgently, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the right wing um, wants to respond to these moments by simply cracking heads, clamping down, right? Sending sure. as, as many cops as they can, as Trump tried in Portland a few years ago. And Trump found out why. There is another approach uh, that the progressive wing of the ruling class advocates, which is trying to incorporate um, select members of marginalized communities into positions of leadership, trying to perform uh, the reforms that people are asking for, and using these kinds of crisis moments um, to re-engineer the social terrain in terms favorable to the ruling class. It acts like a release valve, essentially. Precisely, and beyond that even, um, I think we have to take seriously that, um, I mean, capitalism is um, a crisis-laden system that... Uh, kind of hurdles from one disaster to another. Um, and there are very serious problems that the ruling class is always trying to solve. Um, and in these moments, like you saw in the mid-1960s, right, in the mid-1970s, and recently in our own time, right, with the economic crisis paired with uh, widespread civil unrest, you have these moments when uh, the best and the brightest of the ruling class um, are seeking to incorporate the energy, the dynamism, the innovation that comes out of progressive and radical movements, try to incorporate that in to the status quo, um, of course, shorn of its um, economic and political content. Yeah. You talk about that a lot in uh, the, is it coming out soon or is it already out, um, States of Incarceration? It's out. It's out now. Holy shit. It's All right, go pick that decarcerated. up. Decarcerated. Yeah, uh, uh, you co-authored that with Jean darko Curti. Did I say that right? Yes, a great friend of mine, a longtime Bronx person who's now in Chicago, Jean Curti. Shout out. The official Pod de America shout out. You talk a lot about the uh, the co-optation of the uh, the um, the energy you get on the groundswell of these, uh, these conflict moments, these moments where society kind of compacts and demands reform and demands change that we were living in the thick of a few years ago. And uh, as we were talking about a second ago, the, the, the pressure on the ruling class is kind of off right now compared to what it was back then. And you talk about in the book, maybe how we've gotten here from there and an analysis of the uprising in a way that was really fascinating. I want to take the conversation back to, uh, 
it's uh, you know the core of what we're talking about today, which is the U.S. penal system, folks. Uh, we've you've heard about it. It sounds bad. We actually have a guest here who has been to Rikers Island in 2014 after a crackdown for the uh, in support of the uprising in in Missouri. Uh, how was that? Did you like it? What's your five star review of Rikers Island? <laughs> Do you have a Yelp account that's reviewed it? Well, as my favorite musician Freddie Madball would say, you know, not long, but uh-huh. long enough to write this song, as he added, who, uh, about actually being held in the same building. So I was actually there for a very short amount of time at the Eric M. Taylor Center um, in 2016. Um, and it provided the basis um, for what became uh, captives. I just I became very interested in the social role that this facility played in New York City because it's often represented as removed from the city. Uh, people are uh, disappeared there, um, often very literally. Uh, people are put there. Um, away from access to their families, and sometimes people don't even know where they are. Um, and it's a jail, right? So it's where they're kept before trial. Yes, it's a, it's, it's actually um, it's an island. It's an actual island uh, with one bridge a mile long connecting it to land. Um, and it's, it's not just one jail, but it's a complex of nine different facilities on this island. Um, and so in one way, it is very physically removed uh, from New York. And I mean, if you've been there, you feel, you know, that you feel that removal. But on the other hand, you can look out the window and you can see the Empire State Building. You can, you can see and hear the planes flying overhead, landing um, at LaGuardia Airport, which is actually right next door to Rikers, which means uh, many of you listening who have flown into uh, New York City have laid eyes on this place without even realizing what you were looking at. Um, and so while I was locked up there, um, I just became obsessed with uh, figuring out the exact role that this place plays in New York City because it felt so removed but yet so integrated into the social fabric. Um, you were dealing with people um, who spend most of their time out in the streets. Um, you know, the, certainly the, the large number of guards um, and civilians who work there are very much a part of New York City's social life. And the jail figures into the social life of the city, not just in the lives of the people who are directly um, impacted by it, the prisoners, um, the, the staff, the families of people who are locked up there, but it's also a looming cultural figure in New York City life. I mean, if you've ever tuned into Law and Order, you know, you hear all about Rikers, or if you read the tabloids, you think you know all about Rikers. And in the course of my research, I actually discovered that the French know a lot about Rikers oh. because of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, uh, oh, who was really? held, who was oh, held there. Right. Um, and so actually, one, for a while, the best map that I had of the, the aerial map of the Rikers Island uh, penal colony was in French from a French <laughs> publication that ah. had done an entire feature on what is this uh, medieval penal island that Strauss-Kahn is being held in. What is Rikers Island? <laughs> I've never heard of it before. Yeah, the way we all talk about it, it takes on the character of like the Harry Potter prison of Azkaban right. kind of thing, which is why you would assume you would assume it's a prison and not a jail. But no, those people have not been convicted yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I swear I will ask you politics and history questions in a minute, but I have to know, because you talk about this in the introduction of the book, you talk about uh, you're in jail, you're, you're waiting to be released, you're doing dips every day looking at the Empire State Building. And I was thinking that's what I would do if I was in jail. It's a great opportunity for dips and pull-ups. You're never going to get better body weight opportunities than in that situation. What is the culture like? Is everybody waiting for these bars to go do the dips? Is there a line? Is it competitive? What are we talking about here? Uh, 
that's a great question. Um, and as I say, you have to do as many as possible because there's a line. Um, Shit. There's a, there's a lot of people waiting behind you, people, guys. Um, and you just, you're up there for as many as you can do in a row. You don't want to embarrass yourself. I mean, if you want to do 50 in a row, then people will, will wait their turn. That's a lot of dips. Uh, you know, if you can only do, <laughs> if you can only do two or three and then you go down, don't try to get back up and do it again. You got to yeah. go to the back. Yeah, the that'd line. be me. It's a bad that'd place to learn one. how to exercise probably. Yeah. How many did you do? You don't mind me asking. I can do a lot of dips. Every time. Okay. You can nice. do thousands. And I have to ask, did you intentionally get uh booked there to as an author, yes. as a researcher, with a researcher's eye, or did you embed yourself in the scene? Oh gosh, I wish. Were you I like, could I'm, yes. I'm going to write a book on Rikers, and I'm going to Rikers now. I wish I could say yes. I've had to correct a few people recently. It's just like, wow, I'm really, I'm impressed with your dedication to ethnography. <laughs> wow. Um, no, but the line, the line that I came up with, um, I'm currently working on an ethnography of the the, the jail um, that I was held in with um, with this great writer. Uh, David Campbell, he's an anti-fascist uh, who was held there for actually a year um, during COVID. And the line that we generally came up with was that um, we don't recommend that researchers go there on purpose, but <laughs> as the side effect of political activity, I mean, it's a you are you are afforded um, a very rare opportunity, an un, unfiltered, um, untethered access to this social world that researchers, journalists, academics. Um, are not privy to. Right. We were talking about this off mic before the interview started, but um, what's so interesting about you putting out this history is there seems to be no other information on Rikers right. out. There's no other uh, solid uh, uh, history of the, of the, of the Island to date, except yours that I can find. Yeah. This was actually how I got started on the project, which is, you know, um, I, I went on Amazon and I said, well, with Rikers Island history, and to my great surprise, there there wasn't anything. Um, and there have been journalistic histories here and there. Um, they're often very sensationalist and, quite frankly, uh, wrong. Mm. Um, you know, and the, the it's more, sad. The more research I did, the more I realized. You know, the the common story is Rikers Island opened up for carceral uses in 1935, and you know, the I I quickly discovered simply by going back and reading you know, 30 or 40 years of annual reports from the New York City Department of Correction, uh, dating back to the turn of the century, that that's just simply not true. So literally the first thing that people tell you about Rikers is wrong. Uh, it's been in carceral use um, since the late 19th century. And actually it was, um, it was built out of a very small sliver of land with low-lying um, coastline. It was actually built into the juggernaut um, island that it is today, by prison labor and by prisoners who were forced to live there beginning in 1903. Yeah, that's so, a cheap way to do it if you can. So the land itself is partially artificial. Yes, it's actually, um, it's landfill um, from uh, the garbage, but also the land that was excavated to build the New York City subway. Mm. So oh. It doesn't get any more There's New so York many metaphors. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that's been written. My, uh, my actually friend found the Statue of Liberty at the bottom of the pit. <laughs> they had her yeah. dig the jail. <laughs> yeah, my, my friend and colleague, Jack Norton, who got me started on this project, um, makes a lot about the fact that it's, um, it's a site of waste. It's a profound site of waste. It's built on um, wasteland um, and uh, garbage that was um, increasingly um, clogging the waterways of you know the East River and 
interestingly enough, this was at the very beginning of um, recreational uh, beach going and, and, uh, uh -huh. and oh yeah, um, and so suddenly all of these um, all of these entrepreneurs who are opening up beaches in uh, in New Jersey um, were um, were dissatisfied that the trash that uh, New York City had simply been dumping into the river was washing up in their resorts. Right? So it responded to crises around waste, and it became a place, unfortunately, where the city puts waste people, people who yeah. the city has oh no no use no use for or no willingness uh, to, to, to help or to help plug in um, to a dignified life. The heavy-handed metaphors do not stop. Um, did <laughs> and can I just, what was, so was the island used for... What was it used for before that? Was there anybody there? Would there? Would I was there about to bring goers? this up. Okay. Okay. So you you mentioned in the book that it's unrelated to the actual jail, but it was a uh, a, a stop on like the escaped slave trade for a minute. The the guy who owned Rikers Island would catch slaves and send them back south. Oh, um, there. Yeah. Um, the one of the many Rikers um, was implicated in. Um, the what they called the kidnapping club, which was um, a really nasty racket. If you have to join a school club, do not join the kidnapping club. Yeah. I mean, if I like the name though, you could be the, in the kidnapping club if you just want to. There is a huge views. difference on where the space lands, and you got to read the sign closely. Yeah, he was implicated in this, and it was the 19th century uh, scheme, obviously uh, predating the abolition of slavery that would cap capture people who were who had either escaped from slavery or were simply accused of being escaped uh, and return them to the South. Um, and, uh, you know, it's actually a, one of the unfortunate things about Rikersism. The, because, the, because there's not a lot of scholarly history about it, um, uh, some of the history that gets transmitted um, comes in the form of these kinds of memes. Right. So you often hear Rikers was named after a slave catcher um, which is, you know, it's not, honestly, if you read the history, it's not really that true. It's not, and this, there was one guy in this huge family who was a bad guy. Um, but, and then it becomes, uh, it becomes this kind of metaphysical argument for, and that's why the mm. island is. Right. Is it's evil. haunted it's, by the ghosts of the past. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, which is crazy because it's an island already chock full of ghosts. I don't think you need to put <laughs> sprinkle more historically in there. Well, that's my line on it is the truth is bad enough. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, you don't have to complex. make shit up. Change the name, the Harriet Tubman Island or something. Well, there actually have been, really, it's really sad. There it's have really been dark. people who become fixated on the fact that Rikers is named after this one bad dude, which once again is not true. Um, and their solution is to rename it and to literally change nothing about it besides the name. The, the way that you present it in the book, and maybe you have a more nuanced um, analysis of this, uh, but I was getting is that the kind of the, the, uh, the, Tragedy is the wrong word. The deep insidiousness of the institution is that it's almost built on good intentions. Um, the first few chapters of your book follow Anna Cross, who is the uh, New York City Commissioner of Correction from 1953 to 66. And she sticks out a lot um, compared to um, when you think of who works in the justice system today, you think of these like heavy handed, almost like Catholic school nun type figures who are just like the, the, the damned shall be punished and we put you away and they're, they're arch conservatives, hardline conservatives. And uh, when she takes over her tenure, it's her, her intention when she's kind of building Rikers to make a reformed prison full of uh, educated staff that tends to the prisoners and, uh, you know, like stated essentially like to make the, uh, the, the meme Northern European prisons that you hear about on the internet. Like she was trying to do that. And then we somehow ended up with this. 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and like most historical books, the, uh, Captives is a book that's very much about the moment when it was written. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I was writing this book while the debate was playing out in New York City about whether to replace Rikers Island with a network of progressive, humanistic, state-of-the-art new jails. Right. Um, and this, these are the skyscraper jails that they're now breaking ground to build all over the city to replace Rikers, supposedly. What's the advantage of the new jails? Do they have like soft walls or something? Well, see, that's the unfortunate thing is the, the deeper I got into the literature around the new jails, um, at the same time as I was reading this archival history of um, the jails on Rikers, the more I realized that um, the same thing has already happened before. Um, no, no jail architect has ever come out and said, we're going to build a real terrible facility. It's going to be worse than the ones that exist. It's going to turn people into barbarians. No, of course not. Every moment of jail expansion in New York City history has been justified using this kind of humanistic rhetoric in cooperation with um, local um, you know, uh, progressive architects and social scientists and using all the state-of-the-art theories. You know, pastel colors discourage gang violence and all the rest of it. Is that true? Um, that pastel is, colors discourage gang violence? I mean, uh, among the people who design these these torture camps, it's a well-known fact that pastel colors discourage <laughs> violence. Because um, I think of gangs, the first thing I think of is colors, and, uh, bright colors. In Minneapolis, uh, where I'm, I'm from St. Paul, but close to Minneapolis, and there's this... These, You're always so honest about this every time. <laughs> there's this... Uh, project called, well, I forgot what the actual name is, but it's colloquially referred to, not my term, but it's colloquially referred to as the crack stacks. And they're these very tall buildings that have pastel panels. And I've heard that that was kind of in that same, same mindset of like, we're going to, you know, brighten up the neighborhood uh, mm -hmm. and, and the blight. Give you something to smile about. Right. Yeah. Look, maroon. And so I was, I was reading all this historical material alongside trying to stay on top of this debate about the new jails. And um, captive, as a result, captives is very much a polemic, actually, um, about the idea that you can build a better jail in New York City. Um, and my strategy, um, both politically and uh, narratively, was to be as generous as possible um, to and across and to the progressives who built these jails. I think um, there's, a, there's a tendency you, among activists to assume the worst of people um, who work for state institutions, especially repressive state institutions. Um, you know, some historians say, well, you know, someone like Anna Cross said that she was trying to build a good jail, but was, she was really motivated by racism and really motivated by class prejudice. And my response to that is, unless you have that written down somewhere, um, unless you can prove that, you're basically making it up. Mm. Um, you know, you can't, you actually don't, you cannot tell me that she was motivated by, by, um, by any kind of desires that are not documented. Um, and so what we're left with is, um, what she said, uh, about what she was doing. Um, and I think that be, so I, I chose to begin by being very generous to cross. Like this is a person who actually wanted to make society better. She had a vision, um, for how our society could handle, um, antisocial behavior um, and all of the, the different um, maladies, you know, that characterize an advanced industrial society, widespread um, alcoholism, drug abuse, homelessness, 
right? She really thought that you could address these problems by building better jails. And I said, okay, we'll take her on her word for it and we'll see where it goes. And unfortunately, uh, the narrative structure of the book shapes up to, to resemble something like yeah. a gear of the wrath of God. It's, um, you know, it's, we, we start off on the, on the, the road to El Dorado and we get something entirely mm -hmm. different, right? It's, um, it's really cool to read about. I mean, she, she has all these, um, I don't know, run of the mill kind of uh, dead ends at the beginning. She's like, she's butting heads with the prison guard union. And then, uh, as she just stumbles through these things, she gets farther and farther inoculated into building this like monster factory that we know and love today. Well, yeah, and that's and that's where the political intervention really comes in for me because um, Cross was uh, beset from the beginning by the powerful interests, um, the organized interests of the jail's guards, who um, do not want to surrender control over their working conditions. They do not want to surrender control over how they do their job uh, more than any working person does, right? Unfortunately, in the case of cops and guards, yeah. the work that they do is not making widgets or, you know, building cars or, you know, making sandwiches, but is, is administering violence. I appreciated that you put a paragraph uh, uh, regarding that in the book because you know who your audience is. It's just like, now you think unions, you think good. Yeah. However, if your job is cracking skulls in a prison, it's actually bad sometimes. Well, that, and that goes to an interesting debate that I hear a lot now. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on like, are cops, prison guards, should they be, are they still workers? Are they part of the working class? Or are they like a separate thing? Yeah, this becomes a really thorny issue. And every time I talk about this, I make somebody mad. And before you get mad at me, I'm your friend. Hear me <laughs> and I'm <on>. Jake Flores. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've heard this before and um, it almost becomes a tautological argument, right? Mm -hmm. Cops are not workers because the working class is unified and it always fights together and it, do, it doesn't undercut its own interests. And so cops don't do that, therefore they're not workers, right? And it's mm. just, or, I mean, but that's just, that's just not true. It's based, it's based on a, a fundamental um, uh, untruth about actually most, uh, most or many working people um, are not unified um, and they do things that often undercut each other's interests. Um, and I don't think it makes a lot of sense um, to to make cops into some kind of moral outliers. Um, I think it's actually becomes very interesting to think about um, the cops in terms of people from working class backgrounds um, who relate to their jobs um, the same way that working class people do, but who do jobs that simply should not mm. exist. Yeah. Yep, a lot of those. Yeah. I, yes, I appreciate the my... Uh, grandfather was a New York city police officer and uh, the way it's, it's told in my family, it's like he had no other option uh, because he was Irish. And um, I'm curious, is that, is that real? Is that true? Or uh, what year was it? Uh, this would have been nineteen. It was 40s. 1995. <laughs> <laughs> An Irish man couldn't get a job in this country in the forties. Yeah. Well, I think that this actually really, this is important to think about when we're talking about a city like New York. Right. Um, I did an event a few months ago um, with some other uh, scholars, and one of one of them was insistent to me that the majority of the guards in New York City are white, and that they're that the power that they wield in um, New York City politics can be explained by the fact that they're white. Now, there's one problem with that. 
it is 100% not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the, the composition of the guards at Rikers Island actually mirrors almost exactly the composition of the prisoners at Rikers Island, which is um, 90% black and brown, mm. um, almost everybody from these, these same working class neighborhoods. That's in almost the opposite of what I was told a moment ago, <laughs> that they're all white, I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people expect it to be similar to um, the upstate system, Mm. where you have a whole lot of like good old boy white guys guarding yep. a whole lot of black people from the city. Yeah. Uh, but it's just simply not the case in New York. Right. Um, and so this is, this is what I mean where I think we need to have a, a more complex understanding of how the uh, cops and guards relate to their work and how they relate to the class. Uh, because these are people who come from um, traditionally segregated uh, underserved communities um, where options are um, severely curtailed, like like the old like the Irish folk stories that we grew up hearing mm-hmm. from our grandparents, right? Right. Um, and you know, if if you're living in um, in a place like uh, like East New York, Brownsville, uh, South Bronx, right, uh, working for the city in any capacity is considered a ticket out um, of you know the um, the state abandonment that you've been born into, um, and specifically working for the DOC or the NYPD. It's a great job. Uh, you get 20 years and out. They call it the 20-year sentence. And if you grew up surrounded by violence and fearing for your safety, nobody's going to fuck with you anymore. No, you uh, get a gun. Yeah, and it's like, and, and, and if you grew up in a place where, you know, you have to be in a gang, now you're in the most powerful gang in the city. Right, cool. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't want to... Um, deny moral agency to the individual people who make these decisions. But I think it's really important to think about um, these are people coming from working class backgrounds, largely with their, um, with their options severely curtailed. Um, and the attitudes that they bring to the workplace are very similar to the attitudes that you would find among industrial workers. Like, yeah. I still, like when I got started on this project, I read a bunch of kind of self-published memoirs by Rikers uh, CEOs. And they're great. And you know what? What immediately occurred to me when I was reading them is, these are factory memoirs. They're very mm-hmm. similar to the kind of writing that you would find out of the steel belt in the 1950s, 1960s. These were workers who were um, fighting in this this crushing bureaucracy, doing what they perceived to be a dangerous, uh, thankless job. Their hours were strenuous. Their lives outside were chaotic as a result. And what they desired above all else was to get through their day as easily as possible with as little oversight as possible from their superiors in uniform and most especially from the civilian do-gooders who want to tell them, come in and tell them that they're, oh, you can't do a chokehold, you can't do this and that. Mm -hmm. So here's where you have the twin figure of a very ordinary uh, working class relationship to a job, but the job itself is fucking ghoulish. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that definitely tracks with my, you know, I've, I've only been to jail once, but that definitely tracks with my experience there with, uh, with the guards who, you know, I expected coming in, like, oh, they're going to be really mean. And there's some of that, right? Uh, they're going to, you know, go out of their way to abuse people and belittle people. But in a lot of cases, they were just, you know, just there to do their jobs and would even give us tips like, hey, you're going to get out quicker if you do X, Y, and Z. Like, they're not tr- totally drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, yeah. ultimately... 
maybe they are, but like in, in the moment they're just, they're just there. In their day to day, they just want to play candy crush. <laughs> That's what uh, we see with the bloated police budget is the drive. Every human in the city has to play candy crush at all times. But I, I'm curious, like, cause Anna crush, she comes in in with the fifties. 1953. 54, 54, yeah. Okay. So oh. this is sort of like, sorry, Wikipedia. <laughs> You're out Ooh. of here. You got, Oh, we got a Wikipedia fight, bro. We can, I, I love these. I did not write this. Look out for this. Cross Wikipedia. No, Wikipedia is always right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look out for that talk section and it'll get feisty. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, she is sort of, I think you argue that she's part of the sort of the progressive New Deal, uh, proto great society milieu that time. And this is after, and you know, conservatives always love to point this out that progressives um, were part and parcel of the eugenics movement. Uh, which is a very widespread phenomenon. Um, but this is so, sort of a little bit after that. But I'm wondering if there's some carryover in the way um, we were, they were viewing working class people. If you, you can't use the racial analysis quite as explicitly at that point, because it's after the Holocaust, but uh, in the way that they, that, you know, that there's just something inherently broken in, in a working person and they need to come here to be fixed on, on a mental level. Do, do, you, do you see a connection there? Oh, 100%. Um, Anna Cross uh, can be traced directly to the, the high progressive era. That's when she began um, her career in uh, law and civil service. And this was a period when um, we saw the emergence of these, um, these kind of professional, what we would call middle class occupations um, that were geared towards re-engineering uh, working class people to be good, um, high-functioning citizens of an advanced industrial society. And we're talking, for, for the listeners, we're talking about the period beginning roughly in the 1890s um, and continuing for several decades thereafter when you saw the emergence of professional organizations like the American Medical Association, the Bar Association, um, the development of public health and social work as we know today, the development of all of these different social courts, family court, drug court, these things, and of which Anna Cross was actually an innovator. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've, read, I've read too much about this period, and there's a tendency to, to just focus on these were charitable people, you know, who um, wanted, to, um, wanted to make things better for the poor and this, the wretched. But I think there's actually a very clear class analysis to be made, right? These, this was very much very similar to the nonprofits that you find today. In fact, these are the these are the earliest forebears of the the contemporary nonprofits. Um, very similar to those nonprofits, you saw people who were intervening in social crisis and basically trying to save capitalism from itself. Uh, right, the FDR move. Correct. Yeah, and F- FDR came um, on the momentum of decades of this um, throughout uh, major American cities. I mean, if you. If you if you think about, I mean, again, to talk about New York, um, unrestricted, um, you know, unregulated capitalism created um, a complete disaster area in large parts of New York. Thinking, I'm thinking about the Lower East Side in particular. The Gowanus Canal is still so poisonous. When you put a robot in it, the robot breaks. Yeah, when you buy an <laughs> really? organic Dang, apple. That's, I read that once. What? Wow. <laughs> When you buy an organic apple at the Gowanus Whole Foods, it's just a regular apple. <laughs> <laughs> but 
um, you, so you saw these kind of professional characters who really, they wanted to rescue capitalism from itself. And I think that that's, that's very important to keep in mind. And Cross says this explicitly, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to engineer working people um, who are going to be responsible, who are going to bring their kids to school, who are going to keep clean households. You know, when they get their paycheck, they're not going to, you know, disappear into the bars for a couple days and then come back penniless. Mm. Um, they were trying to basically discipline the uh, the working class uh, and, to, and to make them good workers uh, through this kind of ideology of middle class respectability, right? But they did not want to fundamentally alter the class dynamic, right? They didn't they didn't want to elevate working class people to the point where they were challenging class relations. They wanted to acculturate them to accepting class relations. And I I read a really funny quote from from a, one of their contemporary critics who said, you know, all of these people want uh, the w working class to adopt. Uh, bourgeois values, but they would be scandalized if working class people adopted these values and began greeting them as equals. Yes, mm. absolutely. It's it's so crazy hearing about this being the uh, the the status of the day in the fifties. Now that we are awash in it, and everybody expects to go to college and get a quote unquote good job and come out of that, and then you realize you're living in a triangle. There's no room for everyone to be in the middle of it. It's just not how it works. Um, I want to expand the conversation a little bit so that we have time to get to um, prisons outside of New York City in case you uh, live somewhere over there. So you always hear about the... Um the uh, period of uh, hyper penalization that happens, you know, especially like Reagan era stuff. Uh, we go, we tr triple, quadruple the number of prisoners we have in the 80s and 90s as a uh, national trend, right? Um, what, what in the history of Rikers kind of mirrors... The, the the journey of the U.S. penal system, like, and and what are what are some national characteristics you noticed in the arc of Rikers Island? Well, I hate to be a New York chauvinist, but you can <laughs> learn a whole lot about the trajectory of American history just by looking at what happens here. Um, this is a very important laboratory by which um, the ruling class kind of tests the different sauces that it's going to boil Americans in. I mean, I always, always say, if you can socially engineer it here, you can socially engineer it anywhere. <laughs> America's task kitchen. You heard it here, folks. So, you know, the, the, the pivotal event in, in New York City history in the last, you know, half century, of course, is the fiscal crisis, 1974, 1975, uh, when uh, New York is unable to sustain its budget. Um, bankers will no longer underwrite the city's debts. Um, and an organized faction of Wall Street representatives basically argues that the city needs to um, dramatically cut its social service infrastructure and effectively transfer control over its budget to the private sector if the city wants to remain solvent. And that Faustian pact is exactly what happens, you know, in 1975. Um, and I talk a lot about this in the book because that was a period of high um, membership and uh, quality of life uh, for a variety of New York City uh, public sector employees. Um, the New York City municipal unions had been recognized for the first time in the 1950s. And in the course of 20 years, they had developed a lot of power and they had built up a lot, they had built up a, um, a large base of living wage um, jobs, what we today call middle-class jobs, right? In today's parlance um, for, um, for a whole lot of New Yorkers, um, including a whole lot of people of color, right? Because as we know, it's more difficult to discriminate in hiring in the public sector than it is in the private sector. Um, and a, a lot of 
uh, black and brown people were finding their way into home ownership, um, you know, sending their kids to college through um, public employment in New York. Right. I mean, what we were saying a few minutes ago, you know, what if you were from an impoverished community and there was a union you could be a part of that wasn't being a cop or a prison guard? Precisely. And this is a moment where you saw a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, for the for the first 20 or so years of their legal legally recognized existence, um, New York City municipal unions more or less cooperated with one another. Um, they um, they followed practices um, like pattern bargaining and un- the unfortunately named Me Too clauses. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> wow. By, Sorry, that's really funny. To by, be- by which um, unions can effectively argue for similar contracts to those received by other unions. So, oh, okay. so for, for instance, the sanitation workers were always a very powerful union uh, just because of the absolute nightmare that they can engender in a few short days by striking in the summertime. Um, oh, yeah. mm. And so they were able to pull a lot of the less powerful unions along with them by working together and promoting each other's interests and engaging in pattern bargaining. But in the early 1970s and culminating with the fiscal crisis, you saw the emergence of the so-called uniformed unions, specifically the the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, the Cop Union, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, the Guard Union, uh, coming out and saying, screw the rest of these unions, right? They saw that the pie was shrinking, right? Yeah. And rather than joining in collective action uh, to say, "Let's, um, let's all work together to push back against austerity, right? They hey, said, we're all working class. Yeah, they said, and this is this is why, and I understand this is why people say cops aren't working class. This is what this is what they're talking about, right? This was a moment when um, these unions had the opportunity to show solidarity with other uh, city agencies, especially unions like the sanitation workers, who had kind of led the way for them. Um, but instead, they basically they they said to the city, um, "We are not city workers like any others. <laughs> um, we actually we demand more." We demand better, um, and we will we will keep the city running, right? While you cut all of these other agencies, so you can gut the parks, you can gut public housing. It's fine. We will pick up the slack for less. This is why you're in a park now, and there are just police cruisers driving on the little walking path <laughs> across the green the whole time. Yeah. You have to dodge a car. They, you're taking your dog out. They took they took over the city by promoting this successfully promoting this idea that there is something unique about police and jail guards that's more important than any other municipal service. Um, and in doing so, they forged uh, an alliance with the the finance, insurance, real estate sector scumbags who were trying to dismantle New York's um, kind of primitive social democracy. And so the cops really, and this is what I really want to emphasize, if you take one thing away from captives, the political arrangement that we have in New York City today with this alliance between um, intensive real estate speculation, right, the dominance of the, uh, the finance sector, right, and dominance by the cops, right, this, this it's not a coincidence. So this is a, a very clear um, political alliance that was formulated in a great moment of crisis in the 1970s. And it's been very decisive 
for uh, everything that's happened since. That's so interesting. Every time we, uh, we, we've talked to Alex Vitale on the show and we've discussed end of policing and the, the role of the police at, that doesn't function where they try to take care of all of society's problems at once by just sending a guy with a gun to your house. <laughs> and it sounds so absurd and you almost feel bad for them in a way, but then looking back at the top 10 anime betrayals moment where they throw all the other unions under the bus to get in this situation now is unbelievable. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because like, on the one, they have the most practical, like real leverage in a way out of all the unions in New York, but they, but in like a, a economic way, they really don't have any leverage because, you know, they've gone on strike to like in short little spurts, like in, when de Blasio was mayor to protest him, they like, they stopped in, enforcing like petty offenses for like a weekend and right. it was like, this is great. Yeah, nothing. They should do this all the time. <laughs> yeah. So like, how do they have, they, they managed to have all this power despite like, you know, if like, if the sanitation people stop working, as you're saying, it would be a disaster. The cops stop working. It's awesome. Uh, how do they exert so much pressure? And is it frankly, just the threat of like violence. Cause like, you know, we remember how just dogged they were about de Blasio and he didn't do anything. And there were all those rumors when it seemed like he was going to do something too liberal with the George Floyd, Floyd protests where they're like, yeah, they kidnapped his daughter. They, they told yeah, him. They they her. Him. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. I think that's a really good point. I was actually, um, I was in the basement of 100 center street during that police strike. And it was so weird. Um, was I was I was in Central Booking, and it was like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, it was empty. Uh, no, there was nobody there. There were a couple of people, um, mostly picked up on domestic disturbances because you have to make an arrest, right? Um, this one guy f from Springfield, Massachusetts, who didn't realize that you couldn't carry a big ass knife around in New York, <laughs> <laughs> and he was so mad. Uh, but yeah, otherwise nobody coming and going for the longest time. And the cops really thought that was going to turn the city into Mad Max. <laughs> but as we know, actually, complaints went down. Uh, it wasn't just that, that, that nothing happened. Actually, things got a little bit better with the cops not aggressively policing uh, you know, bodily movement on the streets. And, yeah, without the threat of violent confrontation on every street corner in the city at every way of the day. Yeah. Yeah, it chill, chills people out a little bit, right? Uh, you know how you're having a relaxed day on the subway, and then you see a man with a gun and think, I feel safe. <laughs> something well, that happens I mean, to me a lot because not to get too anecdotal again here but like i would the one time I, I was in jail it was a central that uh central booking below center street and like the they I take was, everyone there andrews you're not special i i'm not but i was <laughs> the only, one of the only white people there and okay. so when i came in ally like, everybody started laughing it was like "Ooh, bobby uh -huh. your mom's gonna be mad bobby uh, <laughs> you must have done something real stupid to get arrested, right? Anders I, is I, a trained I a clown. I told a cop, <laughs> I told a cop to take it easy, and he did not. Um, punched me in the face. But uh, is that true? Yeah, you got punched in the face in jail. No, but before I, and I got punched in the face, and then was sent to jail. For oh, okay. Just getting punched with in the face. Your sass mouth. Yeah. But there was so many, it was packed, and there were all these people I would talk to, and there's a guy who was like, "Yeah, my sisters started." We're in a fight. Someone called the cops. I was standing there, so now I'm in jail. So I think I was just in a building yeah. where there happened to be weed, and he got sent to jail. Um, so, like, you know, when we talk about, like, replacing Rikers with these new modern jails, even if you're worried about, like, violent, quote-unquote, criminals, the, the, it's the vast majority, it sounds like, of people in Rikers probably are not a threat to society or themselves in any way. There's, like, really no justification for them to be locked up. 
It, it's okay. It's it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Okay. Um, a whole there's a whole lot of people who get arrested and disappeared into the various court basements uh, for up to seventy two hours, like the guy that you met, like the people that I met, right? Um, who have probably not done anything too bad in an antisocial sense, right? A lot of people haven't done anything at all. Yeah. Um, but I mean, let's face it: we live in an incredibly violent society. Mm. Um, America is is a very violent place. So, you know, whenever I hear somebody say that we could have a nonviolent, you know, revolution, I think we can't even get a nonviolent finding a parking spot during Christmas time <laughs> in this country, <laughs> right? America is a very violent place, uh, and you have you have people who do all kinds of really nasty antisocial things to each other, mm. right? And as we know uh, statistically, right, um, if you're if you have a place like like Rikers, um, where people come predominantly from. Um, you know, these underserved uh, low-income communities of color, um, you have, you know, statistically speaking, a very high number of people who have committed acts of violence against other people from those same communities. Yeah. Right? And this is where you have the appeal of someone like Eric Adams, um, which I think mystifies a lot of a lot of white liberals and white leftists, saying, like, well, how could Eric Adams even exist, right? Um, and I think... The, the, the ongoing appeal of Adams and of other kind of law and order figures who have, who have uh, truck within black and brown communities is that there is a, a, a widespread problem of violence in American society and none of the other institutions that we have um, have proven adequate to solve it. And I mean, that has it's in large part to do with because they've been taken apart, right? Because... People um, have difficulty finding dignified housing, dignified employment, right? Um, there is no public investment in anything but the police and jails. Yeah, and this engenders a really violent kind of an environment in a lot of the most highly policed places. So I think that it's we, we, ha we have to be uh, basically reject the idea that the cops are going to make this situation any better, mm. but while taking seriously that there's a reason why um, defund, abolish the police is more popular among kind of middle class activists than it is in working class black and brown communities with the highest rates of police involvement. And I think that should give all of us pause. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure that we have time to get to that uh, before this ends here because we've been going for a while now. But um, from the introduction of your, your next book, States of Incarceration, you talk about um, kind of the development of the George Floyd rebellion and what started as these, uh, these this, uh, you know, violent palpable uprising where there, there's like McDonald's on fire and uh, they burn down a police station and there are real demands and pressure for change into um, this slate of reforms that kind of gets brushed under the rug over the course of the next two years until we're where we are today, which is a stronger police state than ever. Just, you know, 24 months later. Um, can, where, where do we go from there? Where do, what do you think? If you're looking back at the tape, where was the error made? <laughs> How did we end up here? <laughs> I don't know if we can speak about historical errors I and mean, everybody did the best they could. And here we are yeah. right? now next hustle, time, hustle, hustle, we'll try it again. Um, but in, in all seriousness, um, this is what Jana and I tried to grapple with in the book, um, the states of incarceration. And we came to the conclusion that there is something very profound and novel about the emergence of abolitionism 
as a kind of quasi-mainstream political tendency. And I know there's a lot of people who identify as abolitionists now or very highly visible on social media who are more or less kind of self-serving entrepreneurial types, you know, um, and it can be off-putting, but um, there's a whole lot of well-meaning, um, very smart, dedicated people um, advancing this this politics that has moved from the, the margins um, to almost the mainstream of American discourse in a very short amount of time. And we wanted to take seriously the fact that this is a political tendency that pushes us to think about policing and incarceration, not just as the outcome of law-breaking, right, or as um, these, these neutral instruments of the state, but as issues surrounding um, structural racism um, and class domination. And this is, and in American terms, this is a major improvement in how people understand the world that they live in. And so we, we did our best to um, consider how abolitionism figured into the rebellion in 2020. And we came to the conclusion that um, sooner than later, abolitionism needs to have a reckoning um, with the central question that should animate its politics, which is how exactly is this society without cops going to be achieved, right? And what's yeah. it going to look like? Is this, are we talking about, you know, um, I think, you mentioned Vitali. He says he advocates something like a Northern European social democracy without cops. Right. Uh, you get the PlayStation Shack when you go to jail. Yeah. They or give if, you doom. Yeah, and and you still you still have you still have something resembling capitalism, and you still have class society. You haven't had a revolution, but you've managed to move public funding around sufficient to not require police and incarceration anymore. I'm very skeptical of that position, um, and I think if you have if you understand the cops um, and the um, and the system of mass incarceration, you know, in in terms of political economy, it's like this is this is this is not a big mistake. It's mm. not it's not some tragic mistake. Um, the police are doing effectively what they're supposed to be doing. Mass incarceration is doing effectively what it's supposed to be doing. And I don't think that the people uh, you know who are benefit from this system are going to let it go without a fight. Yeah. Yeah, there's all, there's if you look at it just in terms of a uh, 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 political economy, I mean, it makes sense why these northern European countries with tiny populations and economies buoyed by you know the U.S. empire have a much nicer prison system than we do, and it's because their surplus populations are a you know one hundredth of the size of ours. Do you just put the serial killers in there? It's not a big deal. Yeah, and they have tightly controlled borders, and yeah, they they have wealth that's buttressed by centuries of this bloody colonialism and imperialism, right? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's, I have to hold my tongue sometimes when people talk about those systems because if you know all about Swedish jail and I'm wrong, don't message me about it, but do make <laughs> sure you message me on Twitter, Jake Flores. Okay. Anyway. Can you <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I think well-meaning people point to those systems and say, look, this is much more humane than what we do in the United States. Uh, but I think that there's a reason why we don't, have jails and prisons like that in the United States, then you have to take that very seriously. But isn't that reason capitalism? Yeah, I would say yeah. it's a, and it's particular, what the hell? <laughs> it's particular features. Well, right. because those are still capitalist societies. Yeah, right, right. But America, oh. America's America is a much different place. Um, and let's and it, one of the ironies of um, the the kind of recent social democratic turn in American politics with. With uh, especially with Bernie, who I've voted for now multiple times, I look forward to voting for him on his 100th birthday. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, you see a, you see this romanticism of these northern European welfare states in the United States at the exact moment when they've 
they started to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And increasingly rely on naked violence and xenophobia and all the rest just to sustain themselves. Sure. These, I, these systems have their own pitfalls too. Actually, Andrews, what were you going to say? Well, I, I, this is coming back to me now, but I think I actually remember, were you at a Alex Vitale talk at Woodbine like four or five Yes. Usually, okay. Yeah, I've, it's all coming back to me now because I remember this. Um, God, did I say that same shit? Were you his uh, roadie? Were you following him around with his? Maybe some stuff? of it. I don't think he's any word for word. <laughs> but I remember you had this this conversation, and I asked, and this kind of goes to like you know when we talk about like abolition, there's this um, thing that's been kind of problematized. Some people don't like this term, but you you say, well, we have to think about what what normal people will think, and. Uh, I may perhaps a more accurate um, question would be what will stupid people think? Because I remember at that talk, I raised my hand and I asked a question. I was like, so like, what do you, is there a situation in an ab abolition where you um, have to detain people against their will who are a threat to themselves or others? And everybody just started laughing. And uh, Alex Vitale kind of honestly just punted on the question. He was like, well, I really just try to focus on practical questions now. <laughs> Like, I, I, I understand where you're going from. Yeah, that would have to happen it sometimes. seems like a pretty, like, and if we do that, how different would it look from what they do in Scandinavia? And w couldn't you ultimately call uh, that a prison or a jail if you're, if you're taking somebody from society and, de and detaining them against their will? Yeah, and I think that this is where it becomes really important for me politically to retain a commitment um, to anti-capitalism above abolition. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think that, Abolitionism is a very important means of fighting the class struggle. It's a it's a mass, uh, borderline mass movement um, that a lot that appeals to a lot of people and gets them thinking about um, incarceration in terms of class domination and structural racism. But um, for someone, yeah, for someone like Fatali, who's focused on the abolition of uh, police and prisons at the expense of the abolition of capitalism. Um, you find yourself in this kind of impossible situation where you're unable to account for how we will handle the incredible violence that capitalist societies produce. Yeah. Right. Um, but um, even in a like post-capitalist society though, like what do you call that, that system of incarceration? I mean, you're kind of getting at this a little bit, like, well, how do we actually describe that? That's an excellent question. Um, and this is this is where I think I might not be an abolitionist in the purest sense. Um, because, I mean, if if somebody in the commune is consistently engaging in antisocial behavior and we yeah. can't trust them to, you know, be out um, be out and free without causing harm to people, I mean, we'd, we'd probably have to reinvent prisons all over again. Right. But, you know, plus after the day after the revolution, right, what do you do with all the the people who had the, the property a, a day ago and, you know, are racist and, and violent and, you know, uh, so yeah. I, yeah. And this is where I think it's just important to have like a, an actual, um, a, a practical relationship to abolitionist struggles versus having like abolitionist beliefs, or I've heard people say I have an abolitionist spirit. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm not, I'm honestly not quite sure. But um, I think that we need to we need to relate to this as an important way that the class struggle is being fought, rather than an article of faith that says under no circumstances will we take punitive action against anybody for any reason. Right? And as we know, some of the people who espouse these politics are the most punitive motherfuckers you've ever yeah. met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it can't all be Sean Kings all the way down, but 
it is part of it. Um, okay. Well, we, we are running out of time here, but I, I guess just to crack the, maybe one last question before we go, um, would you, you talk about, uh, in the introduction of state of incarceration about, uh, the, the pursuit of non-reformist reforms at the end of the George Floyd rebellion and, um, you know, you know, things that are, uh, in the name of, let's say, a hardline solution like abolition, but are have an immediate effect now. Like, um, I'm forgetting the term for it in uh, in uh, Soviet history, but uh, when you ha- agitate for union welfareism, essentially, to bring about communism. Economism? Yeah, economism. Is it, is it a similar function to you? Where do we go to pursue, like, actual progress? I love everyone and I agree with everyone and they should all check out the book um, where no, in all seriousness, um, this is a really good question. And anytime a, a politics like this becomes kind of quasi mainstream, um, you, you've entered a fraught moment um, because you have, you have a lot of people who are using abolition to brand themselves. Um, and you also have um, a lot of uh, nonprofit politics and otherwise just transparently reformist politics recasting itself as non-reformist reform um, because it's it's kind of a, a buzzword. Sure. Um, and to my mind, this is where I'm just, uh, at the end of the day, I'm a pretty basic Marxist. Um, is this building the capacity of the working class to take independent, you know, proactive action to free itself and abolish capital, right? Uh, because, I mean, this is where, for instance, I'm not terribly excited about the various um, electoral campaigns that some comrades who I respect to get really jazzed about. Mm. Um, I don't really see how that's building up the capacity of the class to engage in autonomous activity. Right. And so that that's the standard that I would apply to the non-reformist reform question. But also at the end of the day, if somebody just wants to stop a jail because they think that it's going to be a place where a lot of people are going to suffer, then fucking right on, stop that jail, do what you got to do. Right. But uh, just try not to make any deals with the devil in the process. Because as we saw with the campaign to close Rikers, you had a whole lot of well-meaning people get involved in this campaign that ultimately ended up campaigning for the creation of these new skyscraper jails with no commitment to close Rikers. And now we have Adams come along and saying, well, we don't even know if it's going to close at all. So what this has amounted to is effectively an expansion of the city's carceral capacity at a time when Adams is advocating uh, carceral treatment or social issues like homelessness, right? So it's not hard to imagine a future where people um, who are who are uh, homeless in the streets are being detained against their will and sent for quote-unquote mental health treatment in uh, the buildings that were once were jails on Rikers. What a nightmare. Well, <laughs> I have to leave here soon, even though it's my house. So I think we're going to have to close it out there. Um, thank you again, Jared, so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great discussion. Yeah, yeah, I had a great time. Buy Jared's books. Buy both of his books. Um, I mean, you can buy them where where most books are sold. Uh, I like Pilsen Community Books in my hometown of Chicago, Illinois. You can buy it right through their their website, pilsencommunitybooks.com or something like that. I don't know. Google it. All right, sick. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on, and we will see you next time. Rock and roll.